Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. It is a beautiful November day here in Atlanta, and I'm very excited about the lineup of guests we've got coming up on the podcast, particularly my guest for this podcast Every sports writer wants to wind up in his annual anthology. He is the creator and head curator of the Best American Sports Writing Series, Glenn Stout. Welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks very much. Now, I've written about this series uh, several times on the blog, and I've talked about how the stories I've read in there have inspired me through the years. For those who aren't familiar, basically every year, you, and I think just you, but correct me if I'm wrong, go through hundreds, maybe thousands of pieces of sports writing, narrow them down to the top 75, and then you send those 75 to a guest editor who picks the 25 that make it to the book. Am I, am I correct there? Am I accurate? That, that's basically correct, although the guest editor is also always welcome to include stories that I did not send forward to them. Uh, and they often do, which is fine. Um, but yeah, that's basically how it works. I survey material over the course of the year. I pick about 75, send them to the guest editor. The guest editor makes the final decision. Mm. How much of that? They all go to the guest editor. They all go to the guest editor blindly too. They're not identified by source or author. They're just word files at that point. Oh, wow. Now how, uh, how much of that is you scanning the world for great sports writing and how much of what you receive now is from the writers themselves who want to make sure that whatever they wrote is on the list? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I tell everybody that if they really want to make sure that I see something to send it to me because there's so much material out there. Uh, although I try to read as many magazines as possible, I can't read every magazine. I certainly can't read every newspaper. I certainly can't look at every website and every posting. So, you know, it makes sense for anybody who wants to have their work considered to please send it to me. I'll do my best to find it anyway, <laughs> but uh, as a backup plan, send it to me. Never a bad And the idea. instructions are always in the book. This year you chose Christopher McDougall, the very talented uh, magazine writer and book author, to be the guest editor. How did you decide on Chris, and, and what is that process like for you as far as finding which voice you want to represent the book in the series as the guest editor? Well, that's usually my editor at Houghton Mifflin's uh, decision. I'm generally consulted, but that's, uh, you know, I'm just a, a worker bee on that end of it. <laughs> Although we do consult with each other and we do always try to have a guest editor who has a notable presence in sports writing. It's also helpful if they have a notable presence in books because, after all, we're trying to sell a book. Um, but, uh, you know, and Christopher certainly has done, uh, you know, enough work on his own and then had the success with Born to Run. So uh, that all factored into her decision to, uh, to ask Chris, and which I supported. I want to get into the, the kind of the grand landscape of sports writing long form and, and more of an overall sense of the series that you're a part of in a, in a bit. But I do want to talk about this year's uh, edition, specifically the 2014 edition, which I wrote about last week on the blog and, and touched on some of my favorite stories from the year and what I took from them as a journalist myself. 
Uh, I'm curious to you what made this year special, uh, as you've done more than two decades of these now. What made the stories of 2014 and maybe Chris's choices uh, unique? Well, you know, every guest editor brings a little bit of a different sensibility, and I think that's good for the book. Otherwise, if it was me making all the decisions every year, every book would be the same. Every book would have the same texture. Um, and this one doesn't. Uh, you know, it's different. It's got its own stamp. Um, you know, personally for me, I have to say I was I was gratified uh, that he selected a couple of stories that I was involved in editorially uh, at SB Nation. Um, you know, they were submitted blindly. Uh, he didn't know it. Um, and he was certainly offered the opportunity not to select them, given my involvement with them. Uh, but he did. And that, that made it really special to me because, um, you know, I like to see people who do good work be recognized. And I thought we did some good work, and I'm glad that it was recognized by someone. And uh, to touch on that, and we will get into this more later in the podcast, but you are the editor of the long-form section at SB Nation. And uh, how long have you been doing that now? I believe that's a recent move for you, right? Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, full-time since January, but I've been doing it. I did it as a consultant for a, a year and a half before then. So I've been you know, working on it for a little over two years now. Uh, and it is a new thing. It's a um, something that I've really enjoyed, something I find very gratifying. You know, for years I've just been, you know, kind of selecting the best material. Now it's it's actually a lot of fun to participate and um, try to shape some stories. That because I tell all my writers, I say, hey, the goal is to write something as good as the stuff that's in that book. <laughs> uh, so, and I'm sure I'm not the only editor in the world that says that. So. And uh, since you mentioned that, I, you know, as we look at specific examples from this year's edition, I did want to touch on one that came from your website by Flinder Boyd called 20 Minutes at Rucker Park, because for me, that story really typified what I, what I think is a common thread throughout the years with the best sports writing and the, and the writing that gets chosen in your anthology. There's such an honesty to it. So Flinder Boyd basically uh, tags along with this young man who wants to be a street basketball star and wants to get on the end one tour and he lives in poverty in California but you know basically cashes in all of his money quits his job so he can come to New York and compete in one game at Rucker Park for all of his marbles and he fails spectacularly and what was remarkable to me in that piece is how Flinder Boyd doesn't shy away from that he doesn't try to button it up with a happy ending afterwards. He really leaves you with a pretty dark feeling. And I think that's a difficult thing to do as a storyteller and a journalist to, you know, not leave the reader or the viewer with a, a, any kind of call to action necessarily. It really forces the reader, I think, in this story and a lot of the stories you find in the series, to really confront his or her emotions about certain things and really to take in a few big lessons I'm curious as to whether that stood out for you and whether that's something you find as a common thread as well. Well, well it, it did in that story in particular because, you know, the, the, we're so accustomed to stories that have a much more trite and much more neat and compact ending. And this doesn't. You're, you're right. The kid in the story, he fails. And, and there's a line where the kid at the end, he's getting on the bus and he just he refers to him wearing these flip flops. And that's just like heart wrenching. 
and you know, and he's going back to California and he's failed. The interesting thing about this story specifically is after publication, this young man, this basketball player, got his act together, moved to New York, now lives in Brooklyn with his girlfriend, has a job in Manhattan, is playing street ball every night, and is loving life. He's finally like, I'm doing exactly what I've always wanted to do. It took this story and maybe seeing the failure of the story to actually inspire him to take action and change his life. I mean, it's oh the ultimate irony. When Flinder told me, uh, I was blown away, and I looked at the kid's uh, Facebook page, and he's taking all these crazy pictures of New York because it's all brand new to him. Uh, so at the end, it is a happy ending, wow. just not you would expect it's it's kind of funny how things work out i could hear you pounding the table as you were telling that happy ending at the end there and i really hope <laughs> there is a follow-up piece coming uh from flinder about that because that I, is spectacular i've been thinking about it you know we, we gotta we gotta see more of this kid it uh, apparently there might also be some uh some kind of film thing going on with that as well but we'll see wow the one other trend that i noticed and and i don't know that this is a, a trend on a wider scale or maybe just what uh, what yourself and what Christopher McDougall decided for the book. But I noticed that there was a real paucity of short-form pieces this time around. Usually when I look in the book, there are about you know five or six pieces that are relatively short-form or what you might consider a, a normal length for an editorial column or a, an article on a, on a website or a newspaper. But this year it seemed like, uh, with maybe one or two exceptions, they were pretty much long-form across the board. Was that uh, a purposeful decision on Christopher's first part? Did you notice that as you were going through and narrowing down? Yeah, I don't know if it was a purpose, uh, purposeful decision on Christopher's part. I, I certainly sent forward some pieces that were shorter. But I do think it's, it's in some ways harder for a shorter piece to stand out and work. Um, for one thing, I don't think, um, you know, this is not the golden, golden age of the columnist. Um, you know, with the, the retraction that's gone on in newspapers, there are far fewer columnists working now than there used to be. There's just far fewer, less feature work coming out of newspapers, which tend to be somewhat shorter. It's more magazines. It's more websites. And let's face it, there is, you know, something of a of a long-form renaissance that's been going on the last couple of years. So I, I, I suspect to some degree it's indicative of that. But again, it's also just the vagaries of the process. I mean, it's uh, entirely possible that next year's book would have, you know, five or six um, shorter pieces. It, it just it just varies from year to year. There's really no way to predict it. And I think, you know, over the over the long run, you might be able to draw some conclusions. I think it's difficult to do so just based on the selections in one book. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Glenn Stout, creator of the Best American Sports Writing Series and also the editor of Long Form at SB Nation. Let's talk a little bit about that Long Form renaissance because I, I cannot imagine when you started putting these together. Well, first of all, the Internet did not exist back then, but I'm sure as the Internet began developing and you were putting these out year after year, the trend certainly did not seem to be leaning towards long form, and now suddenly it's almost the trend in print journalism right now. Long form sports writing that really translates to the web. 
what have you made of this? And I'm sure it, it probably delights you. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, it's certainly fun for me. I enjoy, I enjoy working on it. I think part of what's going on is, you know, there was this thought that when everything started to go digital, that no one was interested in work of any length, that it was all going to be short and, you know, all that stuff because people didn't want to read on computers and, and all that thing. Well, when the reality was, particularly with younger people who've grown up with uh, computers and with phones, they don't have any problem reading on them. And at the same time, the media was changing. The media was changing as well because we had the retrenchment of the newspapers that's taken place over the last eight or 10 years due to the economy and due to some other reasons. The same thing's taken place in magazines. Uh, and in both those arenas, there's just less uh, lengthy work being done. And at the same token, you had the book publishing industry undergoing some changes, and they have kind of abandoned the middle ground, the mid-list work. And that left a wide opening for longer, thoughtful, magazine length and up storytelling that wasn't being filled on one side in newspapers and magazines and wasn't being satisfied on the other side uh, from books anymore. So I think the impetus behind what we can call kind of this long form renaissance are is storytelling that in some sense takes things a little bit farther than your standard newspaper feature and many magazine features and to a degree can kind of duplicate that immersive process that we are more accustomed or have been more accustomed to getting from books that the book industry is no longer feeding. So it's sort of like long form got abandoned on both sides hmm. and where has it come come up and bubbled up well it's bubbled up on the web because quite frankly there's a hunger for it and there isn't that separation people don't have problems reading on their phones reading on a tablet or reading on computers anymore um that for many people is the preferred medium um and i think you put all of that together um, and that's why we've been so successful and why a lot of other outlets doing the same thing have been successful or the aggregators such as long reads or long form places like that. It also seems like the web has really added something to the genre in terms of design. And, and this is a very recent thing within the last maybe year or two. Suddenly long form stories online have a very event like feel. They don't look just physically looking at the screen, they don't look like a standard web article. And they have become so much more sophisticated in terms of their interactivity. The, the, uh, the pictures and the images and the scrolling screens and the graphics, that has made it powerful. And, and it was funny actually going through, uh, when I wrote the article last week on the blog, trying to find the online versions of the stories in your book because they just look so much different. And it's a whole different experience reading them online than it is reading them in your book where it's simply the text and none of the other bells and whistles. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, great, uh, that's a great point. I think at, 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 at its best, even though you can have all these bells and whistles and you can do snowfall and, and, and have some really inventive stuff, I think what, uh, what, what has kind of settled in is a lot of the kind of stuff that we do, which is... An, an interesting design, an attractive design, but one that's also not so intrusive 
that you have to wade through design to get to the words. At its best, the design enhances the words, can operate alongside it, but doesn't get in the way of the reading process. It adds something to the reading process uh, when it works well. And like I know on our end with SB Nation and Vox, you know, we sort of have this proprietary CMS system uh, that allows us to do design across all these different platforms sort of all at the same time. So when we do a story, it'll look fine on your PC, it'll look good on your phone, and it'll look good on your tablet, and that can all kind of be done sort of at once. Uh, and that's the, the real kind of advances that have been done. And then again, as you do more and more of them, I think the designers get better at intuiting what works best with stories. Um, I certainly have gotten better knowing uh, what design can do. And we have a lot of back and forth and say, hey, can we do this? Can we do that? Um, and, and it works really well. It, it's not the same experience as reading in print. At its best, I think it's an enhanced experience and one that's, uh, you know, just has a little more texture to it. I have to say that has been one of the more fascinating developments over the last 10 years because for a long while, the design of the web had not caught up to the content on the web. And now it seems like it seems like media companies across the board are finally starting to figure out ways pr to produce compelling content online that's different than it looks uh, on just the printed form. And, and like what you said about you know, it, it's not even just on the computer screen anymore. It's being able to simultaneously provide that experience no matter what you're using to look at the story, the PC, tablet, or your phone. Right. I mean, it's, you know, that's how we differ from print. Print was like, here you are. Here's the way it's going to be. You don't have any options, <laughs> you know. Whereas with, with, with online work, you, you have options to look at it on different platforms. Uh, you know, in some instances, you can you can get rid of all the bell, bells and whistles and just see the text. If you want to take a break from the text and you want to watch a video that goes along with it, you can do that. If you want to bookmark it and come back later, that's something that I'm uh, I, I try to do with a lot of our stories is make it easy for you to break away if you need to. I don't want you to leave, <laughs> but if you do leave, I want you to come back and I want you to be able to find your place. Uh, that's why we tend to tell stories in sections and chapters just to facilitate that. Um, you know, there's it's not different from printed work, but there are things that are different about it. Um, very subtle things that we try to um, use and work with because the goal is, quite frankly, you know, to get you there and to keep you there. You know, I'm asking you for a long with a long form story whether it's in the sports writing book or whether it's on SB Nation or any of the other outlets out there, we're asking you to, to, to give up 15, 20, 25 minutes of your time. We have to make that easy for you. We have to make that work for you. We have to make that not just interesting, but aesthetically pleasing and pleasant. And I think you're right. That's what the Internet has. We've kind of started to figure out how to do that on a consistent basis. How has that influenced, and, and by that I mean the need for clicks, the need to be able to hold people and to be able to do it in an online way where typically people's attentions are a little more divided. How has that influenced story subject matter and your story selection as the editor of Longform? 
Um, I don't think it, it influences my selection so much. I mean, you know, we kind of know our audience. So there's always, you know, you're always kind of working with your audience a little bit. But I try not to think about that too much. I'm just looking for stories that once you read it once, you want to read it again. Uh, I want uh, the reader to get to the end of the story and not just go, oh, that was nice. I want them to go, hey, that was great. I got to tell somebody about this. You know, you want them to share it on Twitter or on Facebook. You want to, you know, we're not showing up on your doorstep. We got to go out and get you. And we have to use each reader to go out and get the next reader. Um, so it's not about clicks from my perspective as much as it is just giving you a quality experience, giving you that immersive experience so that when you're done with the story, you realize you started somewhere and you've ended up in a new place. You're somewhat changed. That's what good books do to you. That's what I think a good story can do to you. It can, you can become immersed in it and it can be in some way, sometimes a small way, sometimes a larger way, a transformative experience. Have you uh, wrapped your mind at all around the fact that this medium, which seems so geared towards the shortest possible form, whether it be Facebook posts or tweets, 140 characters max, how that medium has wound up becoming this great platform for long form as well and just the ability to hold people for longer periods of time? I think it was inevitable because the appetite was always there. Um, the only thing that wasn't there for a short period of time as this was all in its nascent developing stages was, uh, was enough work for people who wanted <laughs> this kind of work, you know, that they had to find it. And it was difficult to find. You had to look around for it. Well, now it's pretty easy to find. You don't have to do a whole lot of digging. Um, so I think the appetite was always there. It was just a matter of, of, of actually finding a way to, uh, uh, to tell people what was on the menu. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Glenn Stout, creator of the Best American Sports Writing Series. The 2014 edition is out now, and it is excellent. Glenn, I like to use this last section of the podcast as an advice section for younger journalists. And I, I can't help but think, as you, as you talk about the power of long form, and, and obviously as a writer, there's nothing that a, a, any writer wants more than to be able to have a far less limited amount of space to expound and, and tell a story as opposed to kind of telling the rote, uh, you know, straightforward five W's, who, what, when, where, and why. So how do you convince a reporter or a young writer to get started in a more traditional sense rather than kind of starting in a way that enables them to do long form more quickly? Or do you try well, to convince them? It's like, it's like anything else. You, you sort of have to have the fundamentals down. And I think it's very, very difficult for a younger writer, someone just out of school or, you know, in the first couple of years of their career, you know, taking on a, a big story, uh, a, a real sizable long form takes a lot of skill. Uh, it, it takes it, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing to uh, you don't do it right out of the box. But you have to build up to it. You have to be a great reporter. Everything is based on reporting. If you can't report, it doesn't matter how well you can write. Uh, so it all starts with reporting. And then it start, Then the next step is structure. You have to know how a story is put together. You have to study that. Uh, often I'll tell people, you know, almost quite frankly, 
here are some stories to use, not as blueprints for your stories, but as models. Look at how this writer put this story together. Look at how this was done. And you can kind of use that as a template to get started. So if we have good reporting at the start and we have a good structure, then we get into what I kind of refer to as the delivery system. And that's the actual art and craft of putting sentences together, uh, putting paragraphs together, having those sentences sound good, having the, you know, knowing how to select the right words, working with the rhythm of the sentences, building scenes, creating cinematic scenes uh, that bring your reader in, creating characters that are three-dimensional. You know, there's a lot involved with it. And you have to build up those skills. It's like you don't pick up a musical instrument and, you know, go out on stage and do a guitar solo for 15 <laughs> minutes, um, you know, right when you pick up the guitar. That takes time. And, and, and what I have to tell a lot of younger writers sometimes is, you know, you might not be ready for this yet. Um, but if you're already thinking this way and you're already trying to think of stories to tell this way, that's a good sign to me that you one day you might be. And so keep working, keep reading. I, I tell people, you know, if there's one advice for a writer, you have to read and you have to read good stuff and you have to read a lot of it. And that's not just journalism, but that includes novels, that includes poetry. Uh, you need to have a big palette to draw from. Uh, if you're just reading the sports page, uh, you're not going to be able to do this. Hmm. You need to have other tools at your disposal. And the only way you can get those tools is by reading widely and reading wisely. You know, uh, uh, there's a difference between sitting down and, and, you know, spending six hours a day on the Internet just reading stuff and spending those six hours reading things that are going to help you. Uh, and younger writers have to have to realize that, you know, I got a late start. I didn't publish anything until I was 27 years old. Um, and in a way, that was the best thing I had going for me because what did I do between the ages of 21 and 27? I read. <laughs> I read everything. Uh, you know, I came out of college and I just kept reading. And when it came time for me to write, I realized that I had an awful lot of, um, an awful lot to, to, to draw from. Uh, and that's what younger writers need is to build up all those skills, reporting, structure, learning how to how to find that narrative, how to take a reader from one place to another place. And then it's just a matter of, uh, you know, it gets a little easier every time out and every time out your standards also get a little bit higher. So it doesn't get any easier. But hopefully the end result is every time out you do end up with a better story. You were telling me uh, before we started about your own journey and how you got into the field, and, and I thought it was fascinating. I'd love for you to kind of detail your start and your rise in the world of journalism. Yeah, well, I studied poetry in college and um, had always been interested in sports and baseball and stuff, and I was working at the Boston Public Library, and I stumbled across a story. Uh, this was back in 1986 about the Red Sox manager, Chick Stahl, in 1907, who killed himself during spring training. And I read in a book that he had done so because of the pressures of managing. And I knew enough baseball at that point to realize that if that was the case, there should be an entire cemetery full of dead Red Sox managers. And there was not. 
Um, so I started, re- I started researching the story in the, um, um, newspapers on microfilm we had at the library. I sort of figured out what happened. I thought it was interesting. I got a book that said how to be a freelance writer that told me how to write a pitch. And that's another thing. If you're a young writer, please learn how to write a pitch to pitch a story. Uh, I have a link on my website that that links to it very good because it's not taught very well. Uh, But anyway, so I wrote up a pitch. I sent it to a couple of magazines. I got one, uh, automatic rejection letter from uh, the Boston Globe Sunday magazine and Boston magazine, the city magazine of Boston bought it. And I've never been without an assignment since uh, that was 86. I became a full-time freelancer in uh, 1993 and was a freelancer until this past January where I took the position with SB nation. Mm. How do you feel like the landscape has changed for young writers coming up now? Is it, is it still as simple as, being hungry and, and getting out there and trying to sell yourself with pitches and freelance pieces, or is yeah, there? It, it, made, it made no logical sense when I started for me to do this <laughs> and for it to work. And it makes no logical sense now for a young writer to do this and have it work. However, it works sometimes for some people. It works for me. Uh, you know, and there are lots of people it's worked for, even though it makes no logical sense. The only thing I've learned since I started, the only difference between people who are writers and people who want to be writers, and I knew a lot of people when I was young, we all wanted to be writers, and only a few of us are, and the only difference is some of us didn't stop. Uh, and that's, you know, it's it's silly, it sounds simple, but it's the truth. You know, you put your ass in the chair and you work. And if you keep doing that, you know, I think it's almost inevitable that you will publish and reach a certain level, whether that's going to be your works in the best American sports writing or not. That's hard to say. That has to do with a lot of other things. But if you don't put in the work, uh, it's not going to happen. That's the one thing I can tell you for sure. If you don't put in the work, it won't happen. Uh, But like I said, it makes no logical sense. I look back now when I quit quit my job back in 1993 to go, you know, freelance. Um, that made no sense, <laughs> but I did it anyway. Uh, would I do it today, knowing what I know now? Probably not. But you know, there's something to be said to be young and stupid. You know. Yeah, you have to have a little bit of that youthful exuberance in you, I think, to really uh, yeah, make you go for gotta, it. You, know, you gotta believe in yourself. Nobody else will. <laughs> and I did want to touch on this too. You know, you you. In in the more than two decades now that this series has existed, you've gone from, I would imagine, reading, you know, uh, X number of articles to reading multiples of X uh, and seeing so many more and so much more content coming out. What has that experience been like for you, not so much as a writer, but as a curator and as a just kind of this almost overseer of the landscape, in a sense, to watch the evolution of written journalism it just uh you know the originality and inventiveness of writers never ceases to amaze me um you know when i come across a good story today you know there are times you can tell in the first couple of lines and when that happens that's as exciting now 
as it was when I was uh, just starting to do this, or when I even before I started to do this, when I just come across a great story in my own reading. Uh, you know, if you're not exuberant and uh, turned on by the written word and what it can do, um, you're not going to enjoy this. But if you are, uh, you don't need many moments of uh, uh, great stories to make it all worthwhile. I mean, you come across the thing like J.R. Moringer's Resurrecting the Champ uh, or something like that. Or, you know, when I sat down and, you know, there's another story um, with a writer I worked with called Elegy of a Race Car Driver by Jeremy Markovich about Dick Trickle. And when he wrote that and I read it for the first time, I was just, you know, you're almost breathless because it's like, wow, this is really good. And that's what makes it exciting. And um, that's why you then wade through the next thousand stories, uh, just waiting to duplicate that experience. Mm. Very good stuff, Glenn. That is all the questions that I have. But I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? <laughs> well, there's a lot of stuff uh, that we haven't touched on. But, you know, it, you know, it's just gratifying to know that the, the book has meant so much to so many people. Um, something I really wasn't that aware of until the last couple of years where I've, um, through the SB Nation work, where I've had so much interaction with younger writers and, and people coming up to me and saying, you know, this actually really changed my life reading that book. Uh, and that's very gratifying. And I, uh, uh, you know, you can't really ask for much more than that. Well, I can tell you uh, my own personal story before we go, and it was in the 2002 edition. I was in my first year working out in Iowa as a one-man sports department and opened up the 2002 book. It was the first one that I had bought, read Rick Riley's foreword, which had his 10 rules to great writing, great sports writing, and then that was immediately followed by a piece by Bill Plaschke called Her Blue Haven, which to this day, yep. remains among my favorite, if not my favorite, written piece of uh, of sports writing. And uh, and that I, was... I sorry, go ahead. I've read that story a hundred times, and every, team I, every time I do, I tear up. <laughs> it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And I actually got the chance to meet Bill this year at the Olympics in Sochi and, uh, and told him as much. But yeah, that was, uh, uh, that was something that really just inspired me right from the from the get-go as a 22-year-old journalist. And I'm sure at this stage, you've heard a lot of stories like that from people that are really appreciating uh, what you do. Well, you know, words uh, have power out of proportion. And I think um, that's why we're involved in this, because it's at some level that's happened to us where we realize that words have power uh, beyond our own power as people. And uh, that's a very powerful thing. And you you want to you want to participate in that. So that's why we do it. That is Glenn Stout, creator of the Best American Sports Writing Series. The 2014 edition is in bookstores and online now. Pick it up. It is just some of the finest writing you will read all year. And Glenn, thanks so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. I enjoyed it. All right, and the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.